0: Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, as we come to speak of serious things, we pray in your mercy uh, that you would help us to listen to Jesus and to be convicted by him and turned by your spirit to him, that we might have life in trusting him. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but last week in the midst of campaigning, uh, Scott Morrison was put on the spot about who goes to hell, and he fluffed it. The issue was raised by Bill Shorten, who reportedly said, I can't believe the Prime Minister has not immediately said that gay people will not go to hell. Now, I hope Mr Shorten doesn't believe that the Prime Minister's powers extend to deciding who goes to hell or not, for he will be sadly disappointed. He is disappointed, it would only add to it, uh, but had he has done us all a great favour by putting the question of hell on the public agenda. Now, you may not feel that. In fact, you may just feel a little awkward about the whole matter, perhaps even a little unsettled and defensive, uncomfortable with having to seemingly defend the indefensible, deeply uncomfortable with the thought that some you love may be going there. You see, there was a reason that the Prime Minister fluffed it. We are, on the whole, very reluctant to think or talk about hell. But public discussion of hell is an opportunity for believers in Jesus to talk about sin, judgment, and being saved from hell by our Lord Jesus, to talk about who does and who does not go to hell. It's an opportunity to face the bad news so that we can talk about the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And so this morning I want to help you as believers in Jesus to think about hell so that you can speak about hell if it comes up and so that by God's grace others may be saved from the hell we all deserve. I want to equip you to speak about the worst so you can share the best. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, sitting here and overhearing a conversation about what you might find a distasteful topic, well, let me assure you, Christians don't want anyone to go to hell and that the concerns caught up in talking about hell are not abstractly religious, but human, universal concerns. Talk about hell is part of the Christian answer to the very human question, what happens when we die? In particular, it is part of the answer to the question of whether there is, when we die, some accounting for the way we have lived our lives here. Now, these are not uniquely Christian questions. They are human questions, which have had a range of answers across the centuries. For example, many around the world believe in karma, that what you do in this life has consequences in your next rebirth and that you can never escape the consequences of your thoughts and actions. Others have believed in some kind of afterlife, not a cycle of death and rebirth, but some place where you experience the consequences of what you had done in this life. So the ancient Greeks, for example, had an abode for the souls or shades of the dead, Hades, with various levels and torments, depending on what you had done and also the Elysian fields for the righteous. Some more recently have confidently claimed that nothing happens when you die, When your body dies and rots, that's it, that's all. There is only this life and then you're finished. So there are a variety of answers for this deeply human question that goes to the heart of two very important human concerns. And those concerns are these. Firstly, is there justice in the world? And secondly, is there meaning to my life beyond the meaning I might give it? Think about justice. Is it right that a Stalin or a Hitler who are responsible for the death of millions should experience the same end as someone who has laboured to do good to others? Like Mother Teresa or the woman you know who has sacrificially cared for her disabled child. Is it right that both just die and that's it? If you'd survived the Holocaust or the Gulag, would you feel that that was right? Is it right that a child abuser should die safely in their bed long before their crimes are exposed and that that should be the end of it, that he and his victims should have the same end? If justice is to be worked out only in this life, injustice wins. And if the outcome is the same for someone who lives selfishly, inflicting pain and misery on others and for someone who lives a self-controlled, self-sacrificing life seeking the welfare of others, what does that say of life and how we should live? Do good and bad cease to have meaning? What you think happens when you die has consequences for a commitment to justice and for how you live now. And that makes the question of accountability beyond death a deeply personal question. Do the choices you make in life have any ultimate significance? Significance beyond the pleasure or pain you might experience as a consequence of them in this life. Does living just reduce to pleasing yourself now, whether that means being kind or cruel because there's nothing else than this life? Or is there some structure of justice, of right and wrong outside yourself, beyond your own desires and wants, stitched into the fabric of the universe? a commitment to which ennobles a life, a justice that is inescapable and which rewards those who do good and punishes those who do wrong, not just in this life, for many who do wrong die happily in their own beds, but beyond this life. Is there a structure of justice that makes how you live matter? Accountability for our lives beyond death is a deeply human, personal issue. It is not just a Christian issue. But as I've suggested, there are a variety of ways of answering the question of what happens to us after we die, of whether there is accounting for our lives after we die, which is to be believed. It's important to work that out because it has consequences for how you live now. Is it just a matter of choosing whatever view suits you, what makes you feel better? Or is there someone who can speak with authority on this matter and who should be believed so let's look at the start at two popular views and ask are they supported by evidence and how do they address our deep human concerns as i've said many confidently assert in the word uh, in the words of one of my workmates mugs life's a bitch and then you die at least you knew which, which mug was his. It Didn't get confused at tea time. But he says, that's it. This, this life is all there is. Now, that's a bleak view, but many feel compelled to embrace it. But what is the evidence? Have people gone beyond death and brought back a report? Of course, on their view, that would be impossible. But for us all, death is the boundary of human knowing. So a belief that you just die and there is no more is not a matter of evidence, but of faith. And so this view just expresses people's commitment to some form of materialism. That is the view that matter is all there is and that matter gave rise to itself and is eternal. And again, this is just an assumption, a faith position that cannot prove what it assumes because it starts by assuming matter is all there is and so cannot prove that by examining matter. Materialism sees people as nothing but their physical self, the atoms and molecules and physical processes that go on between them. So when the physical body dies, that's it for the whole person. Now, there is no evidence for this view. It stands or falls with the prior commitment to an unprovable materialism. And what are its answers to our human concerns? Well, on this view, you really are just a chance and transient phenomenon. And your life has no meaning beyond the momentary meaning you choose to give it. And there really is no right and wrong, and for many there is and will never be justice. And your sense that there's something outside yourself, you're crying out for justice, are just the illusions of random molecular connections going on in your brain. This is a deeply dissatisfying understanding of reality. Although I guess there is some consolation if you've spent your whole life thumbing your nose at God to think your project will be a success, that you will just die. Although what an empty success it is. The triumph of your worldview is your extinction. Well, what about the view that your life is a cycle of suffering, of suffering, death and rebirth? Now, that preserves a concern for justice. In fact, it's motivated by a concern for justice. But it is difficult to prove, in fact, impossible to prove. You see, without bodily continuity, you can never prove you are or were the person you say you once were. And how can a claim that something is a memory of a previous life ever be tested satisfactorily? And is this view good? Well, the hope it offers, freedom from desire, is actually a hope for escape from personal existence by strenuous effort. But your individual self is lost in oneness with the universe, once again, the extinction of self. And it has the cruel consequence that the disability or difficulty you may face in this life is all your own fault, retribution for some sin unknown to you, committed in a previous life. Now, I'm happy to talk more about these, but neither seems satisfactory. And both are faith positions, speculative inferences from their prior commitments. So what about the Christian position? Well, Christians do have an answer to the question of what happens when we die, and a very clear view on whether there is an accounting for the way we have lived our lives after death. Christians say, in the words of Hebrews, really, that we live once, we die, and after death we face the judgment. That's actually part of the Christian message. We hear Paul preaching it in Athens, in Acts 17, that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. That judgment, that accounting, is to the God who made us who gave us life and the world in which we have lived our lives. And we are told that judgment is according to strict justice, that God will give to everyone according to what they have done. And so the wrong you and I have done will get what it deserves. And the wrong we have done can never be balanced out by the good we do. We can't atone for our wrongdoing. We can't atone for wronging God, for our failing to honour him, because the good we would subsequently do is just the good we should do anyway. And we know that. Giving money to the poor doesn't make up for cheating on your tax. Being kind to children doesn't make up for cheating on your spouse. We will be judged according to what we have done, and the good we do doesn't make up for the wrong we have done. And what will be the outcome of that judgement? You heard our Lord Jesus speak of it in Matthew 25, eternal punishment and eternal life. Or, in his words in John, some will rise to life and some will rise to judgment, which is rise to condemnation. And that sentence is irreversible and final because it is the life or punishment of the age to come. There is no second chance beyond death. Now that may be a shock, might it, that Jesus taught eternal punishment. But he did. He spoke of fire and the darkness that goes with it, blotting out the light. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He spoke of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are pictures of horror, Pain, anguish, grief, regret, and of no rest ever. Pictures. But pictures to convey that being condemned in the judgment is as bad as it can possibly be. As bad as it can possibly be, but never unjust. It is God giving us what our rebellion against His rule of His creation deserves, what our sin deserves. In many ways it's a picture of God giving rebels up to their choice. They didn't want God, they don't want anything to do with him. In that last judgment he has shut them off from his life and blessing but now with full recognition of what they have chosen, full awareness of the holiness and goodness of the God they are defying, wanting to flee from his just anger but never being able to hide from him. But not all, as you heard, go to eternal punishment. Some said, Jesus, go to eternal life. Now, how can that be possible? For we have all done wrong, we have all sinned, and all deserve hell for what we've done. I hope if you're sitting here as a believer, you know that in your heart. You deserve hell for your defiance of the living God. Jesus can speak as some going to eternal life because he came to give life. He came to set free from sin and judgment by laying down his life in our place. He says he gives his life as a ransom. That is, he pays the price for our sin in his own death. What we deserved, punishment for our disobedience, for the wrong we have done, for our ingratitude and ignoring of God and misusing his good gifts, Our Lord Jesus has endured in his death on the cross. He taught that he is the living bread who will give his life for the life of the world, give his life in death to give us life. Because Jesus knew he would die that death, Jesus throughout his ministry confidently offered life to all who trust him. This is not just life now, but life forever. Truly, truly, he said, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And in calling people to follow him, he is calling them to life. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that is what we see in Matthew 25, the reading you heard. Those who go to eternal life, the sheep, are those who are marked out by their love of Jesus' people. In particular, those who have been sent to preach the gospel. The sheep show by their deeds their faith in Jesus and their welcome of his gospel, a faith that has moved them to unselfconsciously love Jesus' brothers and sisters and especially the messengers he has sent into the world. And this is also what we heard in Revelation 20. It is those who listen to Jesus and trust him, trust him as the Lamb of God who died to take away the sins of the world, who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life and enter the heavenly city. Jesus came to give that life and he offers life to all who'll turn their back on being their own boss, defying God to rule their lives their own way and confess that Jesus is God's rightful ruler and believe his gospel, that he's died for our sins and been raised from the dead to reign with all authority. So Christians, taught by Jesus, believe there is a judgment after death and the outcome of that judgment is final, eternal life or eternal punishment. Now that is awesome and not something we willingly think about. But not wanting something to be so does not make it go away. You will not cure your cancer by choosing not to think about it. Thought of judgment is fearful. That there's someone who sees and knows all, even our thoughts, someone who never forgets or loses track, someone who hears and sees through our self-justification, who will run his standard of righteousness and love over our lives and give us what we deserve. And often thought of judgment is resisted because we have uneasy consciences or because we resent the idea of giving account to God. But before in your fear you dismiss it, think of the goodness of what Jesus taught. Because of judgment, your life has meaning. What you do matters. And what others do to you matters. The choices you make have eternal significance. You're not just a chance product of the universe, here today and gone in the blink of an eye, forgotten. The Creator thinks your life matters enough to hold you to account for how you have used His gift of life and how you have treated His other creatures, especially those made in His image. Your life has meaning. And there is justice. There is an objective standard of right and wrong and doing what is right matters. Matters not just to you, to how it makes you feel. Matters objectively. And that standard, God's standard, will be vindicated. And you can be sure that judgment is just. It's not just a case of who can hire the better lawyer or who has the most resources to fund litigation. This judge truly knows you is never ignorant of all the relevant facts, has no biases, not even unintentional ones, and will not favour the rich or the poor, he is impartial. He will give us what we deserve. But with justice, judgment, well, we are freed from the need to take vengeance because God will judge. And for those who have suffered great injustice for which there's no redress in this life, There is the comfort of knowing that their oppressors will not get away with it. Though fearful, judgment is good, and we jettison it at great cost to ourselves and our society. And think of the goodness of why Jesus spoke of these things. Jesus speaks to warn us, to turn us away from death to life. He takes no pleasure in any going to hell, He wanted you to know it is as bad as you could possibly imagine so you would embrace what is better than you could possibly imagine. The good news of the just and holy God who will give his beloved son in love for the undeserving for you and I give his son to give them eternal life. But should Jesus be believed when he speaks of eternal life and eternal punishment. Well, how do you demonstrate authority to speak on what happens after death? Now, experiencing death is a good start, but let's face it, we'll all do that. Being the only one who has risen from the dead, who has come back to speak to us of death and life, that gives Jesus a unique authority. And that is what Christians proclaim... Jesus was really killed by Roman executioners on the cross and being really dead, he was buried and then he really rose from the dead. You see, Jesus' death was not some near-death experience, it was death. And his resurrection was not some resuscitation by a medical team of someone whose heart had stopped but who had not yet died. No, it was resurrection of an entombed corpse. A dead and now living Jesus who convinced those who had seen him killed that he was alive, convinced them by the evidence of their senses, by seeing him, touching him, talking with him, eating with him, he can speak with authority on death and what comes after. But the resurrection is not just a survivor's story. It is a victor's parade. Jesus claimed to have authority over death, that he could lay down his life and take it up again. He claimed to have authority to judge, to exercise the judgment of God. Dying and rising are the demonstration of the truth of what Jesus said, the demonstration of his authority over death itself. Death itself cannot stop Jesus from doing exactly what he has said. He speaks with authority about what happens at the judgment because he is the one who makes it happen. He is the judge. He determines the outcome. He is the one who can give life, the one who can give life to you, and he is the one who executes the judgment of God on those who continue to reject God. The risen Jesus is the one who speaks with unique authority, demonstrated authority about what happens when we die. Whether it suits us or not, he should be believed. He is a far more reliable guide on hell than self-interested politicians. And listening to Jesus, believers in Jesus should speak up and speak clearly about what happens when we die. So how might you respond to these questions? If asked... Do gay people go to hell? You do need to respond. You need to have a thought-out response that's based on what Jesus says and leads to Jesus, the only real authority on death and life after death, the giver of life after death. So let me give you some examples of responses. Do gay people go to hell? Now you might respond like this. Are you asking me, about what happens to people when we die, or about my attitude to same-sex attracted people. I'm happy to talk about both. And if they want to talk about same-sex attracted people, you ought to be ready. And if you want to equip yourself to be ready, well, have a look or listen to Sam Albury, a thoughtful, same-sex attracted Christian. His book is Got Anti-Gay, we have copies of, and there's a very good talk on the same topic uh, on that website. And if they want to talk about hell, about what happens when they die, you ought to be ready. You might say, well, who goes to hell is part of a bigger question and a bigger answer about what happens to us when we die. What do you believe about that? You might listen to them. And you might even ask them how they know what they've said, how they've come to believe what they believe and whether they think people should give an account. And then talk about what, well, Christians believe about judgment and about being saved from judgment and how we only believe what we believe about death and after because of Jesus. Or if somebody asks you, do gay people go to hell? You might say, well, hell is a pretty awesome and uncomfortable topic. But I do have an answer. But you'll need to understand that the answer I give to do gay people go to hell will actually be the same answer if you had asked me, do white people go to hell? Do politicians go to hell? Do people who sit on the seats in churches go to hell? And the answer is some will and some won't because the issue is not our sexual preference but whether we've repented and trusted in Jesus because all of us deserve hell. Do you want to know what Jesus says about it and how he can rescue you from judgment? If they object to anyone going to hell, you might say, well, I'm not real comfortable with that thought either. But it is what Jesus taught, and I think Jesus can be trusted to tell us the truth about what happens after death. Can I tell you why I think Jesus should be trusted on this? And then you might say, Well, maybe Jesus had a loving purpose in talking about hell, a loving purpose, to warn us so that we don't end up there. And it is loving to warn. And if they're surprised Jesus taught about hell, you might say, Jesus said lots of surprising things. Would you like to read a biography of Jesus with me to get to know him for yourself? Remember, the aim is not to win an argument or, God forbid, consign anyone to hell. Although in faithfulness you may need to warn someone that that's what the Lord, the judge, what Jesus says, awaits them. But the aim is to help them avoid hell by meeting Jesus. So offer to read a gospel with them or invite them to come to Simply Christianity so they can know Jesus for themselves. But you do need to have an answer. You see, if you're a believer in Jesus, you must speak up. I recognise judgment and hell are uncomfortable topics. It's hard to think of people we love facing God's judgment. And thinking about judgment may disrupt our own comfort. It might rebuke our ingratitude for salvation or challenge our determination to just get on with our own lives. But we need to speak about judgment and hell for the sake of others. You see, God saves people by convicting them of the reality of judgment and hell. Let me read to you from Peter Hitchens' book, Rage Against God, and a couple of pages of this are appended to the transcript. Now, Peter Hitchens was a convinced atheist like his brother Christopher. Uh, This book is the story of how he changed his mind and became a follower of Jesus. And in it he recounts something that happened when he was on holiday in France. Uh, What I can recall very sharply indeed is a visit to the Hotel Dieu in Bone, a town my girlfriend and I had gone to mainly in search of the fine food and wines of Burgundy. But we were educated travellers and strayed guidebook in hand into the ancient hospital and there, worth the journey, according to the Green Michelin Guide, was Roger Van der Vaden's 15th century polyptych, The Last Judgment. I scoffed. Another religious painting. Couldn't these people think of anything else to depict? Still scoffing, I peered at the naked figures fleeing toward the pit of hell, out of my usual faintly morbid interest in the alleged terrors of damnation. But this time I gaped my mouth actually hanging open. These people did not appear remote or from the ancient past. They were my own generation because they were naked, they were not imprisoned in their own age by time-bound fashions. On the contrary, their hair and, in an odd way, the set of their faces were entirely in the style of my own time. They were me and the people I knew, one of them. And I have always wondered how the painter thought of it is actually vomiting with shock and fear at the sound of the last trump. I did not have a religious experience. Nothing mystical or inexplicable took place. No trance, no swoon, no vision, no voices, no blaze of light. But I had a sudden strong sense of religion being a thing of the present day, not imprisoned under thick layers of time. A large catalogue of misdeeds, ranging from the embarrassing to the appalling, replayed themselves rapidly in my head. I had absolutely no doubt that I was among the damned, if there were any damned. And what if there were? How did I know there were not? I did not know. I could not know. Van der was still earning his fee nearly 500 years after his death. I simply had no idea that an adult could be frightened in broad daylight and after a good lunch by such things. I've always enjoyed scaring myself mildly with the ghost stories of M.R. James, mainly because of the cosy, safe feeling that follows a good fictional fright. You turn the page and close the book and the horror is safely contained. This epiphany was not like that at all. No doubt I should be ashamed to confess that fear played a part in my return to religion. I could easily make up some other more creditable story, but I should be even more ashamed to pretend that fear did not. I have felt proper fear, not very often, but enough to know that it is an important gift that helps us to think clearly at moments of danger. I have felt it in peril on the road, when it slowed down my perception of the bucking, tearing, screaming collision into which I had hurled myself, thus enabling me to retain enough presence of mind to shut down the engine of my wrecked motorcycle and turn off the fuel tap in case it caught fire and then to stumble badly injured to the relative safety of the roadside. I have felt it outside a copper mine in Africa, when the car I was in was surrounded by a crowd of enraged, impoverished people who had decided with some justification that I was their enemy. Their fear enabled me to stay silent and still until the danger was over, when I very much wanted to cry out in panic or do something desperate, both of which I am sure would have led to my death. I felt it when Soviet soldiers fired on a crowd rather near me. He was a journalist. And so I lay flat on my back in the filthy snow, quite untroubled by my ridiculous position because I concluded wisely that being wounded would be much worse than being embarrassed. But the most important time was when I stood in front of Roger van der Vaiden's great altarpiece and trembled for the things of which my conscience was afraid and is afraid. Fear is good for us and helps us to escape from great dangers. Those who do not not feel it are in permanent peril because they cannot see the risks that lie at their feet. Talk of judgment. Conviction of judgment saves. You should speak of judgment and hell for the sake of others. Oh, and if you're a believer, you need to speak about judgment and hell for your own sakes. Jesus expects us to be faithful to him and his teaching. Remember what he said in Matthew 10, "'So have no fear of them,' that is, those who oppose the Christian message, "'for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, "'or hidden that will not be known. "'What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, "'and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops.' And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Believer, Jesus expects you to be faithful to his teaching and he expects you to be faithful to his claim that he is the Lord and judge, the one who can save and the one who can consign to eternal punishment. You should speak up for your own sake, fearing him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And believer, you should speak up for your Lord's sake. You mustn't let people think that the Lord Jesus died just to make your life better or to give you a sense of inner peace or to let you live a respectable life. Your Lord Jesus is the great conqueror of the enemies of our race, the sin and death that mars and destroys Enslaves and impoverishes, breeds hatred and lies, and he will put an end to it once and for all. He died to save you and all who believe from the hell we deserve and to bring the new heaven and earth, to bring a rescue we could never achieve or hope for. Your Lord Jesus is the one to whom every knee will bow. Don't let people think his death is trivial. Speak up. And live right. Live that life of loving your neighbour that Jesus calls you to. Because people won't listen to you speak of hard things if they see a life full of condemnation, hear a voice full of anger. But they might listen. If it comes from one they know genuinely cares for them, as we listen to Jesus, who loved us enough to give his life for us, they might listen if it comes from one in whom they've met gentleness and kindness, as well as an unwavering commitment to the truth of Jesus. You don't get angry at blind people who can't see the way, do you? You help them. So speak up and live right. Live that life of love. And if you're here this morning as someone who does not yet believe in Jesus, overhearing this believer's conversation... I suspect it's been uncomfortable, but I am glad you have had that opportunity because your life matters. What you do matters, the wrong you do matters. Today you've heard the bad news, that Jesus says there is a judgement and the outcome of that judgement is eternal life or eternal punishment. You need to know the diagnosis so that you'll consider the cure because you have also heard the best news. That the Christian story is of God who sent his son to save you from the consequences of what you deserve for your actions. Sent his son, Jesus, with authority to forgive as well as to judge. Jesus, who gave his life to free those who trust him from that judgment, from fear of hell, and to give them forgiveness and a real hope in a world which is full of death. Maybe God has convicted you as you have overheard the conversation that you will also be judged. And at the moment, you know you do face eternal condemnation from a just God for the things you have done. Well, if God has given you that conviction, don't ignore it. Act. Come and talk. I'll be sitting around afterwards here. Come and talk, or you might talk to Andy. Come and talk. Come and find out more about Jesus. But better still, why don't you call out to the living Jesus for mercy? That's right, Jesus lives. He hears those who call to him. He saves. And he will save you. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. His promise is sure. He will hear you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your great mercy that we would listen to Jesus. We would recognise that through his death and rising, he is the one who has authority to forgive and authority to judge. And we pray in your mercy that you would turn our hearts to him and that we would call out to him and find that forgiveness and life he died to give his people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.